RWJ Barnabas Health Telemed offers you two convenient ways to see a doctor anytime, anywhere, without having to come in for an appointment. If you're in need of urgent care, you can use our app to connect with a provider 24-7, right on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Or you can use our website to schedule a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health Medical Group provider or specialist. And you can even register as a new patient. Book an appointment online at rwjbh.org slash telemed. Your safety has always been our top priority, and we've taken every precaution. So don't delay your care any longer. Get started today at rwjbh.org slash telemed. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Hi again, everyone. I'm Matt Lachlan. Welcome to Speak of the Devils, presented by RWJ Barnabas Health. RWJ Barnabas Health, the official health care provider of the New Jersey Devils. We've got a very special guest for you today on this podcast. You know him from his playing days with the Devils, his time on the TV side with Doc Emmerich, and now joining me on the radio broadcast, Glenn Chico Resch. And we are excited to spend some time with him. And my co-host on this edition of Speak of the Devils is a new member. So we've got an older member of the Devils family. Now we have a new member of the Devils family partaking in this broadcast. And he is Sam Kassan, who's a new member of our content department, but not new to the National Hockey League. Sam, looking forward to spending some time with Chico. Yeah, excited to, uh, to talk to him, especially goalie to goalie. I uh, grew up playing the position, so didn't get as far as Chico, obviously, to the NHL, but still love to uh, talk goalies, any team, whether it's positioning, the evolution of the position, equipment, all that stuff. I love love everything goaltending related. So really excited to talk to Chico. Yeah, well, there's always that bond among goalies, that's for sure. So tell us a little bit of your story, your background, and how you came to join the Devils content team. Yeah, sure. I'm born and raised in Pittsburgh originally and uh, moved around for a couple of years and then landed a position with the Pittsburgh Penguins. That's what I was doing. Basically the same thing that I'm doing with the Devils as a head writer, television, podcast, radio, all those kinds of things. Uh, and for the last 12 years, I was with Pittsburgh and won three Stanley Cups, incredible memories, you know, a lot of things I can take away from that. So, and then COVID hit and things happen. So life changes, uh, plans change. And then the Devils were looking for somebody and just a perfect fit. And I'm really excited to be here. You know, I, I started with the Penguins whenever they were that young team that was kind of up and coming and then grew into a team that won, you know, three Stanley Cups in the dynasty and hoping to uh, do the same here with the uh, New Jersey Devils. They've got a lot of, lot of young talent, a lot of burgeoning uh, players that I think have huge potential and hoping to come along here for the ride and watch them achieve their potential. Well, bring some of that mojo over uh, to New Jersey and, and then hopefully we get back to a time when the Devils were among the dominant clubs in the National Hockey League. So what does your eye look at when you're putting together a story? Obviously, there are some specific assignments, but do you look at hockey from a different perspective? Like, what are you trying to bring to the readers and the viewers and, and those who watch what we do? Well, actually, I was a psychology major in college, so I, uh, I'm really interested in the mental aspect of the game that goes into it. So when, I, when I'm watching a game, you know, I'm thinking, what is the player thinking in this instance? Where's their head at? You know, and, and that goes, speaks to everything from their confidence level to their motivations to, you know, e even if they're 
little nervous in situations, especially with the younger team, you know, when situations arise. So I, I kind of try to look at more from that kind of perspective and, and a little bit from the strategic perspective too. But, you know, I, th- I think um, one thing that really stood out to me in Pittsburgh in particular, when head coach Mike Sullivan got there, so obviously he turned the team around. They were a little bit of a slump that he got there and they won back-to-back Stanley Cups. I remember having a really interesting lengthy conversation with him about the mental aspect of the game. And one of the things he said is he believes games are won or lost before the team even hits the ice. So whether it's through the preparation, whether it's through their motivation, whether it's through their mental acumen, whether they're just ready to play that game before the puck even drops, they're going to win or lose the game based on all that. So I always thought that was really interesting. And, and that, that's kind of the way I view things. Well, that mindfulness has become so much a part of the greater culture, but in sports, it has particularly become a tool to help enhance what the players bring to the ice or the basketball court, baseball field, whatever. So interesting that Mike Sullivan was an early proponent of that because it really has only recently become embraced by everyone in sports, right? Yeah. And I mean, you're seeing teams, I know the Devils have a sports Mm -hmm. psychologist, Amy Kimball. So, and she actually was in Pittsburgh before coming to New Jersey. So you're seeing a lot more teams are, are investing in those kinds of aspects. And, you know, I think one of the earlier, earliest events of that was in the NFL was actually with place kickers. You'd have these kickers who could make field goal after field goal. And then all of a sudden they started missing them all. And, you know, you, the team started bringing in psychologists to work with kickers to kind of help them get out of their funk or whatever it is. And then they were like, Hey, we're kind of onto something here. Maybe this can be applied to other positions and other areas of the game. And I think, you know, you work on all the skill aspects of it, whether it's your skating, your shooting, in goaltending, your positioning. We work on those all those things, but that's really fifty percent of it. The other fifty percent is in your head. It's it's kind of shocking. It's taken sports that long to kind of catch up with that aspect of it. Well, when our guest began his journey in hockey, sports performance, sports psychologists, <laughs> nowhere to be found at the discussion table, but he took his talent. It took him to college. He's a member of the University of Minnesota at Duluth Athletic Hall of Fame, took him to the NHL, won a Stanley Cup with the New York Islanders in 1980, ultimately became a part of the New Jersey Devils as they began their journey back in the 1982-83 season. And really, with just a few years away from the organization, has been a part of the team ever since. And so on that note, we welcome the one, the only, the inimitable Chico Resch. Glenn with two N's, Chico Resch. Welcome to Speak of the Devils. And who better to speak of the Devils than a man who was part of the original team? So welcome to the show, and thanks for giving us some of your time. Well, thank you, Maddie, And I'm glad you added the extra N. Because my idol growing up was Glenn Hall. He's a Hall of Famer, had the most, played the most games without uh, a goalie mask. But he, I said to him, he, his name was Glenn Hall, one in. And when I finally met him, he, he became my goalie coach in Colorado for a year. I said, Glenn, what happened, uh, you know, to the, other, to the other end? He said, I don't know. My mom got tired and she <laughs> got to the first end and that was it. So um, thanks for pointing that out, Maddie. And yeah. Uh, being an original devil, I got to say, is, is kind of special for me. How come? Well, you know, I, I don't have a lot of things that I can say. This is one thing you can never take away from me. But uh, I was the first one signed. I remember uh, the spring of, of uh, 80. Let's see, it would have been the spring of 82. We were finishing up in Colorado and they were selling all the souvenirs out of the souvenir shop. I said, 
we're not coming back. And I, and I love playing in Denver that year. I bought a bunch of souvenirs myself. And then, uh, so I was, we were just wondering who was going to buy us. And then the announcement came that Mr. McMullen, who I didn't know, of course, at the time, but I knew that he had owned the Houston, what were they called? Not Astros. Astros. Yes. And then, um, and then, so that was exciting. And he sent a plane, a private plane to pick me up in Brainerd. I thought, geez, I must be, I must be something. But what was interesting, you guys, I hadn't, I had only signed because Billy McMillan was a general manager. We played together, uh, Sam and, and Maddie. And so he said to me, look, at, I was a free agent in the Rangers. I would have never gone, just so we know, never. I don't care if they'd offered me $2 million. I would have never gone to the Rangers. But they were negotiating, and I told them, and I said, you know, there's a couple other teams. And he said, Chico, you got to sign with us, with the Devils. He says, I, I just got the job. I've got a new owner. You're my good friend. If I can't get you to sign, I may be gone tomorrow. So I said, okay. And then they sent the plane and I flew out. We had the first press conference uh, um, in the old uh, Meadowlands. And, you know, so I think that's why, Maddie, it's just, you know, I was just there at, uh, you know, ground zero when this franchise started and just kind of a nice memory. Sam, I'll let you jump in here in a second. But I just want to ask, so Chico, you knew you were leaving Colorado. That's been well documented. I mean, my goodness, you went from uh, a practice facility that was inside to then outside. <laughs> well, you, the changing room was a trailer. So you knew that wasn't a good sign. And then they put the trailer on wheels. So you knew that was even a worse sign that there was permanence in Denver. But you had no idea that New Jersey was a potential home never mind for you you just told about having to sign with them but you never knew where that franchise was in route to really not early um mr gilbert uh, from buffalo owned us and we had heard negotiations were going on but it wasn't finalized uh till you know after the season and, and then we heard that it was going to we're going back for me it was sort of like i was going back home maddie to a new house you know, I go back to the old neighborhood, but it's a new house. And so it was exciting for me, although we had driven by that big monstrosity, the Meadowlands. It was called the Brendan Byrne Arena. We had driven by it going from Long Island with the Islanders to Philly. It was sit out there. And you remember back in the day, there was nothing else around. So I knew the outside of the building, but I didn't know anything about the interior or really even much about Jersey or the hockey um uh, fiber of what New Jersey was about. So it was a lot of unknowns. We said you were there from ground zero, watched this organization build its way up. What were those early late years like? Because obviously there's a lot of issues with getting fans, getting people to buy in, you know, getting people into the gates and, and growing the organization. What was it like those early years? Well, you know, Sam, it was exciting. You know, I knew we were in a good hockey area. And the thing was, you know, Mr. McMullen, <clears throat> finally had some deep pockets when we were in Colorado and even the owner before me, you could tell they were just buying as an investment. They bought it. They try to build it up. And then when we didn't win and, and uh, you know, the value didn't go up, they'd sell it to somebody else. So coming here, uh, that was exciting. I got to be, meet Yogi Bear, a legendary Yankee. He was Mr. McBullen's really good friend. So that gave it, uh, you know, validity. And, um, you know, we had a, we had a practice rink, Totowa, and it's now, I think, a storage building or something, but it had two rinks. 
Uh, it had a, a concession stand in front. The dressing rooms weren't very good, but Mr. McMullen said, no, we're going to build new dressing rooms. We're going we're gonna to really do this right. And um, so it was exciting. But one of our first games in the, uh, that season was against the Rangers. And the place was filled. And perhaps it gave us a false sense of, uh, uh, of how difficult it was going to be to build a fan base. Uh, but that, I still remember that game. Herbie Brooks, the great uh, Olympic coach from 1980, was coaching the Rangers. Um, so, I mean, then, then we dropped down to like a regular crowd, seven, 8,000, you know, very loyal and gung-ho and fired up. Um, but, uh, and then the team, we got off to a good start. But uh, I got to tell you, Sam, we weren't good. We had traded Lanny McDonald. We had traded Ram Rob, Rab Rahman. Rob Ramage, excuse me. Um, uh, I, I realized early that um, it was going to be tough. But then the next year, and I'll just fast forward, we had heard about this guy named Mario Lemieux, who was a phenom. And the last place team was going to get him. I've heard of him. So it gave me a goal. <laughs> it gave me a goal not, not to win the cup the next year or make the playoffs but to finish last, but that's another story we can talk about later. Yeah. So you spent a couple of years in Jersey and then obviously you got traded from there. What was it like when you got traded? I know you, your heart was really in Jersey. Obviously you're still around with the organization. What was the, what was the went down when you got traded? Well, it was a bit of a shocking um, disappointment, but uh, Saturday <clears throat> we had played the flyers and I had had a really good game. I'm not bragging, but no, I was outstanding. No. <laughs> First, second, and third star. Third star, yes. Thank you, Manny. But, but I had not only played well, it, but we, I had started a fight. Can you imagine another brawl? I, I, I started the big one in Montreal that was the, the mother of all brawls and changed rules. Uh, but we were playing the Flyers, and they, were, they had Rick Tockett, and they had a tough team, right? And I remember Davey Lewis, who, by the way, coached uh, – Igor Sharangovich for Belarus. He coached Belarus, but that's another story. But David Lewis was a, an Islander, a king, and then he was a devil. And so he um, was kind of jostling with Rick Tockett in front of the net. Rick Tockett dropped his stick. So I, I got my goalie stick and got it on the end of his stick and shot his stick away. Right? And he looked at me and said, you're dead. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> So, I mean, he, he, Rick was a good guy. He didn't punch me, but he grabbed me and threw me down and tore my mask off a little bit. So we started that. And so that was on a Sunday. And then, I mean, excuse me, Saturday, Sunday, I'm feeling good and pretty good. Practice, yeah, coming off the big win. Tuesday morning, I go in, we got a game that night. And this is how different uh, the world is, the way they do things. So I'm there and at my stall and I see our general manager uh, Max McNabb come in the room. I thought, well, I wonder what he's doing here. And he coming towards me and I'm thinking, Oh, 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 it's trading deadline. Oh, Oh. And he says, Chico, could I talk to you in the stick room <laughs> in the stick room? Okay. So we go in the stick room and close the door. And I can still, I can still see the stick racks and all that. And he says, you know, Chico, ah, this is hard, but, but we have a chance to trade you to Philadelphia. He said, well, what do you think? I said, well, tell me, Max, I, I really like it here in New Jersey. It's the last year of my contract. I know. But I said, uh, let me ask you this first. Can you guarantee me that you, you will sign me next year? 
And he went, oh, I can't do that. Oh, and then with, with the oh, I thought, that's a pretty good sign. He doesn't want me to stay. And, and Max was a great guy. He was trying to do a job. So I did say, okay, I, I will leave. And then I had to go out of the stick room and, you know, all the boys are in there and, you know, I couldn't even say goodbye. Some of them had filtered onto the ice and I went upstairs and talked to Bobby Clark. And I did say to Max McNabb, I said, Max, could I have my last two New Jersey Devils jerseys? I want those so bad. You, you, as Maddie knows, Sam, I'm a big time collector. And uh, so I went down after that and the guys had gone already because they had a game that night. And I said to Keith Parker, I said, uh, Keith, uh, Max McNabb, because back in the day, you didn't expect anything, right? So he said, I said, he said I could have the last two jerseys. You know, could you get them for me? And, and Keith was, Keith was a good trainer. He was a good guy. But he did have a problem about, they didn't make much money. I'm only guessing, but I think he thought part of the equipment was his. So he says to me, you're not going to believe this. But they're both gone. I said, they're both gone. Yeah, he said, I said, well, where, where did they go? He says, I don't know. He says, but I think some of the workers here at the them. <laughs> now, you guys, I'm discombobulated. I can't think. I should have said, no, no, no. They wouldn't know I was traded. Well, how would they know to come to get my jersey? Only you. Anyway, to make a long story short, you guys, I waited 15 years to find out about those jerseys. I had an idea. So then. Uh, 15 years later in the early nineties, my friend called me and said, Hey Chico, one of your, your last jerseys is on um, a website to buy. So I called the guy and the guy's a lawyer. And I said, listen, um, you know, you have my Jersey. I told him who I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, I gotta tell you, it's really stolen merchandise. <laughs> I said, it's legally mine or the devil's. And I said, tell me, how did you get it? And he said to me, well, I can't tell you that. And I said to him, well, if you don't tell me, I'm going I'm to get legal action and I am going to prosecute you having stolen uh, goods. I said, but if you tell me, I will let you have it. I, you, you know, you bought it or you got it. It's yours. But just tell me. It's OK. He said, I got it from Keith Parker. I knew it. And so I never did, I never did get my last uh, two New Jersey Devils jerseys, but uh, that was okay. Uh, but that was a, that was a crazy day to get, getting traded. Did the, did the attorney have both of the jerseys? Um, no, he didn't. And he, he didn't know where the other one was. And it was the red one. If you ever see it out there, um, the white one, I don't know what the heck, I don't know where that one is, but uh, I really, I would he, he did say, I said to you, and, and you know, we weren't making much money. I, was, I wasn't thinking either. I said to him, well, well how much are you going to ask for it? Because he was going to sell it. He said, uh, 2000 My God, 2000 I know me. I'm not worth 2000 That jersey will never appreciate. It was mine. Um, so I didn't buy it. I, I probably should have because jerseys have increased. But uh, and then the last thing on that story. So the next day. I got to drive to Philly and I, this is no word to lie. You guys, I thought we just have this brawl with the flyers. I can't stand the flyers from the Islander days. Some of the Donnie Brooks we had I'm driving down the Jersey turnpike and I got to about exit exit four because the final exit to get off, as you know, Matt was exit three. And I pulled over 
And I just sat there and I was kind of praying and I said, Lord, do I really want to do this? Do I, can I really go in the enemy's camp like this? I meant it. I knew I was near the end anyway. And I, I said, no, suck it up and go. So anyway, I go into their practice rink. Now, I, we just had this fight. Rick Tockett, who's now the coach of the uh, Arizona, uh, uh, Arizona Coyotes, he's in there. So you know how you do when you get traded. You start at one side of the room and you go all the way around. Hi, hi, I shaking hands. And I'm looking at Talk. He's got his head down. And I said, Talk, how are you doing today? He says, Chico. He said, I'm sorry I had to jump you. He said, I'm sorry I had to ragdoll you. He says, but you know our coach, Mike Keenan, he said, he saw you shoot my stick away. If I didn't react to that, I would have went back to the bench and he would have been all over me. So I had to grab you. I didn't hurt you, did I? I said, no, Talk, it was good. Um, but then it turned out um, to be the next year, you know, one of the best years uh, that I had. So it worked out well. But uh, leaving Jersey was really um, a painful experience because I really thought I would end my career there and maybe have something to do with the organization. But it took me about 20 years to finally get back there, boys. But now I'm here. <laughs> and and we're happy for that. Uh, and we can talk about that. There's so many stories that we can discuss with you because of your long affiliation with this sport and with this organization. And I know you brought some masks in. Sam's a goalie, you're a goalie. So I'm going to step out of this conversation for a little bit, but before we begin that, what's the best piece of memorabilia or, or the, the, your favorite piece of memorabilia that you have? Maddie, I think it's the Glenn Hall Jersey from the early sixties when they were a terrific team and Glenn signed it for me. It's an old wool Jersey. Um, you know, that would be it. Um, obviously my New Jersey devil's mask, which I'll show later. That's a piece uh, that I, I like masks are really popular. Um, and, um, so that, that would probably, uh, be it. You know, I have some wind sticks, my first and last win with the devils. And, um, but I think the Glenn Hall, might be the other reason is, Maddie, those old wool jerseys are going like for 50000 and up. So mm, that might be why it's one of my favorites, too. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. man who shares the first name but with one less N, shared the position, has become a friend, was your coach, but it's added to the bankroll, at least as part of your assets, not bankroll. Cause you still have it. Anyway, I'm going to let you guys talk a little bit about the profession because uh, Sam, when you first started as a goalie, I'm sure the equipment was a, a lot better and uh, was a, a lot easier to get on and play with than when, when Chico started, but Chico, let's start with some of those masks that you brought with us uh, with you today so that we can talk about the evolution of the position and its equipment. Okay, what would you sort of do? Would you talk about the evolution or you want to talk about the masks first? We can start with the mask. Have you ever played without a mask in your career? Well, I, well, I did. You see, Sammy, you know, I don't know why you started. My first year of goalie, I couldn't skate. I'm eight years old, so whatever, that's grade three, you know, and I couldn't really skate. But the Shaq man, who was an outdoor rink, and that's where the outdoor games were played, one of the goalies didn't show up, and he was yelling at me. I was standing on the snowbank by myself just watching the game, which I always did. I always dreamt about playing, but never had the courage. Well, also, mm, I couldn't skate. That might have had something to do with <laughs> not signing up, too. 
But he calls me and I'm looking and I'm kind of nervous and he's yelling at me and I'm very shy at that age, believe it or not. Um, and he said, kid, come here. So he, um, I, I go, I, you know, I thought, geez, I don't know. Should I run away and get a, you know, get out of this uncomfortable situation? But I walked over to him and he said, listen, uh, nice guy. Jack was his name. I still remember him to this day. He says, listen, one of the goalies for the teams didn't show up. Do you want to be the goalie? I said, um, but I can't skate. He said, that's okay. Come on. He took me into the, there was a warming house at the end of every outdoor rink in Canada at that time. And there was mostly outdoor rinks. There was only like one indoor rink in the whole city, which was about 125,000. Anyway, he took me in there, had me lay down on these goalie pads, strapped these goalie pads on. I had my rubber boots and it was cold. So I had a big parka, which was almost like uh, upper arm gear, uh, Sam, <clears throat> he put the chest protector like a baseball's mat, uh, baseball catcher's uh, chest protector on. Then he pulled me up by my, my uh, snow jacket up on my feet. Then he handed me this glove to hold a stick. This is no word line. And then this other glove to catch, although I couldn't catch. And he said, well, you're ready. I thought. I got no cup on. I got no mask on. And he said, no, goalies don't wear masks. I said, oh, and they weren't at that time. So then he pushed me out on this outdoor rink. And that was my first uh, ever hockey game. And he said to me, son, he said, I'll let you finish the season. That was like in uh, November. He said, I'll let you play this season without skates. But next year, when you come back, you have to be on skates. So on the off days, I learned how to skate, but that, that's how my career got started. No mask. And uh, so it was frightening, um, Sam, no mask. <clears throat> and then when Jacques Plant got his nose almost torn off in uh, Mad the old Madison Square Garden in New York by Andy Bathgate, I still remember getting the newspaper and seeing a picture of him and, and all that. And then, then he wore the mask. And then it was more acceptable. You weren't like a total coward. It seemed like they only did it because they thought you'll be a coward if you wear a mask, which I was. But uh, so it, the mask really fitted my personality. But um, so that was it. But for uh, one, two, uh, three more years, I played without a mask. And so it was all about bravado, trying to be, quote unquote, a man by not wearing masks. The, the other guys, obviously not you. Oh, yeah, yeah, the other guy, yeah. But, well, you know, because I've talked to some of the old timers, <clears throat> and even with Jock Pond, he got such pushback from Toe Blake because, you know, I, I, I thought of it later. I thought, let's see, baseball catchers, they got to see the ball. They got a mask from the turn of the century or before. It's not restricting their view. If, the ball, if they miss it, the ball falls down, they just put their head down and look at it. But there was this thing about, oh, it would restrict you. You know, you wouldn't see the puck at your feet. And then it was the macho thing. You're right, Sam. And the NHL guys said the same thing. And Toe Blake said to Jacques, you're not wearing that. And Jacques says, I'm not going back out on that Madison Square Garden ice. If I don't wear this mask. There's no backup. So the story is he did wear it. What was interesting, he wore it for about, um, oh, maybe a month and a half. And he went on this long winning streak. But Toe Blake, would, he wouldn't get off his back and kept saying, I don't want you wearing that mask. I think it's hurting you. I think it's hurting you. So 
Jock said, okay, now this is, this is about 18 or 20 games later. He takes the mask off for one game. I don't know if it was planned or not, but they lost. And they lost three nothing. So obviously it wasn't just him letting in goals saying, you know, I'm letting in the goals that I don't have my mask on. But uh, then he put it back on and, and never took it off. And then, then there were other goalies. Don Simmons, a Boston Bruin goalie, was number the second guy to ever wear it. And it's slowly, but all through the 60s, there were a lot of goalies, as you know, Sam, refused to wear it. Glenn Hall was one, Gump Worsley, um, because they just said, nah, you know, it's kind of a sissy thing to do. And uh, but I, when you know you're a sissy and you got something that that'll take you out of your sissiness, <laughs> like a mask, I said, I'm wearing that mask. <laughs> yeah, I actually worked with Eddie Johnson. He was the last goaltender to not wear a mask for a full season. Yes. Yeah. So do you have some of the masks with you? We'd love to see, especially some yeah. of those early. So what happened was so now this is we're fast forward to 59 and I am one of my uh, 12, 12 going on 13. <clears throat> and, um, the master starting to come around. There is one, um, Sam, that I don't have. I've seen it. Well, I do have it, but it's in Minnesota. But it was a, a completely fiberglass mask that just was this long, sat in front of your face, kind of like some of the people wear those kind of plastic things with COVID in some of the department stores. That's what it looked like. But the problem was, <clears throat> because your breath is hot, <clears throat> I tried that, and then it would all fog up, as you know. So then um, my dad was the coach. There was this other guy, Lowell Lanigan. He was pretty good, too. But we both couldn't be goalies. And I think he caught on. Let's see. If Mr. Resch is going to pick one kid to be the goalie, it's probably going to be his son. So I remember Lowell coming to me and saying, <clears throat> you know, I think I'm going to change the defense. He said, I bought a mask. And I didn't even know where you bought him at the time. He says, but, but I'll, I'll give it or sell it to you. I said, okay. And so Sammy... Now, here's what it looked like. It wasn't much, <clears throat> but at least, and it was also warmer, so it helped you in those cold winter nights outdoors, but it wasn't much, but I mean, at least it helped because there were some kids. I remember this one kid, Timmy was his name. He had a wicked high shot and he would come in on me, Sammy, and he'd say, uh, I'm going to hit you in the face. I'm going to hit you in the face. And he'd lean back like he's going to really lift it. Well, I, I would just back up thinking, I don't want to get hit in the face. And then by, by the time I'm on the goal line, he's got the whole net. He just shot it in. But um, this helped me feel a little more secure. So that was my first mask. And uh, and then I had a variety of others, Sammy. But then, I don't know if you'd know this, then the, the, the masks were kind of made by local people. Like my wife and I made my first mask in New Haven for the New Haven Nighthawks. She helped me uh, with it. So you were making it yourself or the trainer. But then all of a sudden, this guy out of <clears throat> Boston, uh, Mr. Higgins, came up with a form-fitting mask that every goalie wanted. <clears throat> they were expensive, <clears throat> excuse me, and they were hard to get unless you were on an NHL team. But when I got called up to the Islanders, they said I could get one of these masks. And here is the mask now, and it's an Ernest Higgins mask. And so this is the mask that I wore, you know, at first. And I got my nose broken wearing this, but it was a big improvement. And so it was white. Everybody had white masks. Uh, somebody stepped out. Jimmy Rutherford, who used to be the uh, GM of the, the, of the Penguins, 
he had he he would put a sticker a Detroit sticker on, but there wasn't full um, painted masks that had a design. So one of the guys in the clubhouse said to me, "Hey, my girlfriend, and there is her name. I still had it on. I said, Linda, Linda Spinella, <clears throat> put your name on there." She said, and "He said she'll take it home over the weekend. We, you know, after the Saturday game, so Monday and Tuesday. I mean, excuse me, Sunday and Monday, <clears throat> she'll paint it." So she brings this mask. Well, actually, it's not this one, Sammy. The first one is in the Hockey Hall of Fame, but this is an exact replica of the next year. But that one I, I put on, and I'm thinking, you know, you're going to be a real hot dog if you wear that. Like, you know, the fan, the the team's going to think, look at that guy, thinks he's bigger than the uh, team. That that still was the culture. But I said I'm going to do it, and I could still remember hopping out on the Coliseum ice, and just a buzz, because no one had seen that. And so, you know, I wore that um, for mm, two years, and then I had other ones. And then at the end of my <clears throat> Islander days, uh, Greg Harrison was losing business because he was making form-fitting masks, <clears throat> but the cage was coming in, as you know, Sam. The cage was coming in, and so he came up with an ingenious idea. He would make the mold, but he would cut out the middle, right, and then put that cage on. So this was um, my last Islander mask. and. Why this is significant, you can see I have my my New Jersey Devils logo on there, and this is the one I wore. But Sam and Maddie, where I blew it, this mask is really four masks. This mask is at least, well, I, I'm thinking 15 to 20,000. Like the real stars are up, are you know, the real authentic ones. But I was such an idiot because this one has – the underneath, it has the Islander paint job. Then it had uh, uh, the New Jersey paint job. No, then Colorado. Yeah, Islanders, Colorado, New Jersey, and Flyers. So I had the same mask with four levels. And <clears throat> Sam, if I had gotten a new mask in each place and had those now, and they're worth fifteen or $20,000, it's $100,000 I blew. But under this, so then... When I retired, I wanted to have the Jersey logo. So I had an artist paint the exact replica of my, my uh, mask. And so this has got five layers of paint, but um, it served me well. And um, then finally, I brought a mask because this, and then I'm going to let you guys tell me about some of your experiences with masks. But this here was Dwayne Rollison, and he took Edmonton to the Stanley Cup Finals uh, when Carolina won. But Dwayne was an Islander for a while. And what he did was he painted my logo on one side and Billy Smith's logo on the other side. And this mask, compared to the one I just showed you, is incredible. You've got a thing here, Sam, where you can blow up the, uh, the protection inside so it's form-fitting and it's very well-made. And uh, the funny thing is, you can't maybe see it here, but I said, if you if you give me one of those masks and Dwayne, had, uh, he had one made for me and Smitty. I said, I'll get you Smitty's autograph. Now, Billy Smith's a tough autograph, um, but I mean, they're so good now. And I mean, they changed the whole game uh, and I'm rambling here. But the last thing is Maddie will never, ever say, 
Oh, pass across, two-pad slide, save. Because nobody does two-pad slides anymore, as you know, Sammy. But the reason we did two-pad slides with a, 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 just a form-fitting mask or no mask, you're not going to go over face first, right? We're not stupid goalies. We're going to throw the, the lower body over. And that's why the two-pad slide was so prominent. And um, so that's just some of the evolution of goaltending and the equipment. And uh, But I'm curious, both for you, first of all, for you, Sammy, and Maddie, too, what was the attraction, why you wanted to be a goalie? And then secondly, what was the first mask that caught your attention? Uh, the first mask that caught my attention, I think, was the Brian Hayward, the San Jose Sharks, where he had the shark ma- mouth with the teeth. All around. That was a big yes. And then uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh. So Ken Reggett, um, when the Batman movie came out with the penguin and he had the, the penguin's head on the top one, those, those were really, uh, those are the two ones that really jump out to me. I think they're both actually in the Hall of Fame uh, in, in Toronto too with those masks. But I mean, I never really had much of a, a painted one. Most of it was just my friends that would paint my mask for me. Uh, <laughs> couldn't really afford to get the nice expensive ones. I wish I would have had a little thing where you could blow to have it form fit, but <laughs> fortunately I was balling on a budget. So, uh, I had friends that were artists that would paint uh, various designs and, and come up with different things. But yeah, I mean, I love Felix Potvin too. He was one of my favorite goaltenders growing up the way he had it with the, the, the riffles down. Um, obviously Martin Brodeur's mask, legendary Patrick Waugh's masks are legendary. Uh, Ed Belfour with the Eagle on the yeah, side. Well, Sammy, tell me, what, what attract? I'm always curious because I think goaltending is a calling. Like you, you can't you can't talk someone into being a goalie, and if they want to be a goalie, they don't want to play anywhere else. I'm just curious what what your experience was. Honestly, I don't know. I just always wanted to be the goalie. I watched from the first time I watched the game, and I saw the guy making the saves. I was like, I want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy scoring the big goal. I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's because goalies are eccentric and different in nature and, and you're right maybe it's just a personality thing that you know draws certain people to the position but uh it, it was definitely from from literally the moment I started playing hockey I didn't want to play anywhere else so and luckily I had coaches that were like all right go for it nobody else wants to do it <laughs> so, <laughs> to do it well that was interesting because I told um Maddie the, the the two words he cannot ever use for goalies strange and weird they always <laughs> say that about goalies but we are the most logical we we are, I always say, we're God's chosen athletes. We're the smartest guys out there. Not everybody believes that, but Maddie, at least, he, he nods his head. Yeah, okay, Chico, if you no, say I, so. I, I, I've become a believer. In fact, I won't use the term athlete anymore uh, as if it's a surprise that a goalie's an athlete. That was why, what, he's really athletic in goal. Really? He's playing in the National Hockey League, so... <laughs> So, uh, I mean, right? Like, you, yeah, exactly. Those guys on the ice, so I think cerebral is the way to go. Yeah, cerebral. That's a good. That's a good term yeah, to use. Good. And really, yeah, I can't. Con- I can't really contribute anything to this conversation because the last mask I wore, I was seven, and I was the Lone Ranger for Halloween. So that's the last mask that I ever wore. So forget about goalie masks. Uh, it was a yeah, long time ago. You, Maddie? What about just, just like, I'm always curious though, you're, you're coming into the business and you're coming out of baseball and you're starting to watch hockey. What, were there a couple masks though that you remember that kind of caught your attention? Well, I think there's some of the, the classic ones, right? I mean, like Cheevers had the marks where he would have been hit to show that, you know, that uh, he would have been cut across the face. 
Um, I remember Bobby Hull seeing video, and, and this is a, a pro mask, but maybe anti-goalie because, I mean, he came down and just blasted that slap shot and he caught, who was the Ranger goalie up here and just like knocked him out and drove the plastic that was, wasn't the shield. It was prior to that. It was just that plastic on your face and just drove a piece of it into his forehead. And he was out on the ice. And I remember seeing uh, some film probably of that. And I thought, wow. Cesar Maniego, I think, Maddie. Okay. I think you're right. Before Cesar went to uh, Minnesota. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean. So brave guys in there. Brave, brave guys. Remember we were talking the other night. Athletic too. Huh? Athletic too. And cerebral. (laughs) Cerebral, athletic, and brave. There you go. That's it. Courageous. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Maddie, remember we were talking the other night when Buffalo was in town, when Taylor Hall took that slapper right on his chin. Remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what old goalies felt quite often. I mean, I, I commend uh, Taylor Hall for coming back that night, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of that kind of thing going on and, you know, goalies were losing eyes, you know, as you know, and um, it was, it was no wonder some of them quit especially the older guys who weren't wearing masks, the pressure got to them. Um, it, it was, uh, to me, you guys in the sixties, when they had the big hook, like one of the reasons why goalies didn't really need masks as much twenties, <clears> thirties, <throat> even forties. And then in the fifties, the, 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 the blade was so straight. It was really hard to shoot the puck up high consistently and hard. They, everybody would shoot low, but then remember in the early seventies, Stan Makita, Bobby Hall, banana hook blades like this, no, no legal limit. And that thing would dive and dip. And I just remember, you know, Bobby Hall knew that he had a lethal shot. Like I played against him and guys, honestly, you couldn't see it. He had a big thick blade and he'd cup it down over to when he was slapping over the puck. So you could hardly see it. And you just like, I I did close my eyes a lot. I'm, I'm telling you, I was still afraid and I'd go, and just wait, did it hit me? Did it hit the net? I, I don't hear uh, the crowd cheering. Did it hit the glass? But anyway, so he was lethal, but he, he was always cautious. But Dennis Hull, who was kind of a free spirit, you know, he was after dinner speaker, always joking. He would come down and just whip that thing bad angle. Oh, Chico, you're lucky he didn't get hit in the head with that one. <laughs> but also the next one, he, he was playing me, right? Um, but it, it was. It was just terrible. And then I'll just tell you one more thing about this in the middle. I'm at 74, 75. I'm trying out for the Islanders. And they had this rule. They were going to try in, in training camp exhibition games. If you're going in the faceoff and, and uh, the defending player does something illegal, okay, he gets thrown out of the faceoff circle. So the opposing center, they just set the puck on the dot. The opposing center would have a free face-off. And what do you think he'd do? He'd pass it back to the top of the circle, and this guy would be like this. And honestly, this is no word like The goalies, after about, I don't know, maybe a week or so of exhibition games, said, hey, this can't continue. We're, we're going to get killed here. Uh, and then they changed the rule. But um, everybody, Maddie and Sam knows it. Why is it everybody's out? 
to make a goalie's life much more difficult. Why? <laughs> but it is changing, right? Because it, it used to be, all right, all the skaters on this end, the coach would talk to them and, you know, the goalies would kind of work by themselves, wouldn't necessarily have a coach, just kind of talk to themselves and then high shots and guys would want to work on things. And you're like, I'm on your team and you're trying to rip these bar down and they're coming up high whizzing by my head. So things have changed dramatically. And we see even more of an evolution with, with the devils expanding the role of the goalie development uh, department. And that's probably not the right term, but you know, it, so you're, you're getting a lot more respect now, fellas. That's for sure. Well, I think so. And, and Sam might know this, but so when I'm still wearing this mask with the Islanders, I got to tell you about this mask. I won an award with the Islanders in 77 and I got a really nice portrait painted by Leroy Neiman. He was, a, you know, Maddie, I don't know, Sammy might be before you, but he, he was a top sports artist. So he paints me a real nice uh, picture of me in my Islander uniform and stuff. And, the nice guy. And he said to me, Hey, listen, next year, if you want, I'll paint your mask. Now this is a top artist. And I remember thinking, yeah, that would be good. It probably gets stolen. about the first time I laid it down somewhere when they found out how valuable it was. So I go into the training camp and the Islanders have brought in Euron Augusta. That's his name. He's a Swedish goalie. And he had the cage, Sam and Maddie with the helmet right now back in the day now remember this is in the 70s europeans weren't getting a lot of respect and i'm watching them in practice you guys and and guys are going down and like you said manny they're just reefing it and it's hitting them in the head and you know he they wouldn't shoot like that on smitty and i but they had no mercy on that kid <clears throat> and i'd see him he get hit in the head and he go and then right and i'm thinking Holy jumping, those masks must really be good because I had my nose. You could say I had my nose broken. Bobby Nystrom took a shot, hit me on the side of the mask, tore my, I mean, it pushed my nose over. It didn't tear it. Um, so that's when I thought, oh, Leroy, I, I, love, I love that thought. But Leroy, I got this other kind of mask that might save my life. And so I went to the cage for a little while and I never asked Leroy to paint my mask, but I regret it now. I should have worn it for a couple games. You know, I had him uh, paint the I, and use the other one too. Well, that, yeah. See, I know, I know. I, I just wasn't. Th- I'm not, I wasn't ever an entrepreneur, and so I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't think far enough. Had like I say, I painted my my devil's mask four times. I could have had four different masks, all worth fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. But oh well. Uh, it's like ten thousand dollars to paint some masks it's, it's incredible oh no yeah you know what else is interesting sam you would know this maddie is um the top mask painter and maker but more painter is from sweden and when the devils played over there uh what was that three four years ago maddie when mm-hmm. we all went over there i met the guy you know he was henrik lundquist's painter but this guy has taken over North America. He, he, there, there are some other painters, but he's the top artist for uh, NHL goalie masks. Don't know his name. Uh, Lars. Let's go with Lars. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, probably right. Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. Uh, and that, of course, was in uh, 2018 when the Devils went over to Sweden. Great experience. 
Uh, you said that you were shy at one point. When did you come out of your shell? Because I think anyone who knows you knows you as this outgoing, gracious, gregarious human being. Oh, it was, with the honest, I was probably 30, 31. And, you know, the dressing room back then um, was pretty rough. I mean, it was rough. And I would just go and just kind of sit down and not say anything and just sit there. And then, I mean, I, I, it was, I was enjoyable. The guys were nice. But, you know, I never really felt like I was part of the team and stuff. And goalies, I don't know, Sammy, I, I think goalies, <clears throat> Matty, are either shy or they're really outgoing. Right. And so I was shy. And then, I don't know, somewhere around 30, I was listening. And you know how we can self compare. Like I, I'm not as funny as that guy. I'm not as witty as that guy. I, I couldn't do that in that environment. I'd be so intimidated. I would just say something stupid or whatever. And then, then I started listening to my buddies and I thought, Oh, they're not so funny. They're not so witty. You know, it was sort of like a, a, a comparison where I said, you know, you, you're okay. You're, you're not a top, you're not going to be the, the vocal guy in the room because every room when I played three or four guys, the outgoing, confident guys ran the room natural, right? Cause they would, they felt comfortable in, in front of a group, but that was a really a change. And then, you know, the other thing, because don't get me wrong. It wasn't that college made me smart, but college just helped me think outside the box. So when I got to New York and these writers would come to me and you know, this Maddie and, Sam, you you probably do too. You really appreciate an athlete or a player that when you ask him a question, he doesn't just give you the cliche or he just doesn't give you the pat. Yeah, no, I'm playing really good. Yeah, no, I mean, things are going good. I'm just playing my game. You know, I'm going hard every night. So I, I started to recognize if you go deeper with some of these reporters, they really like it. And then you start getting quoted and then they come to you. And so then it turned was a bit of an ego thing from being shy. But I, I think that was the transition of um, me um, coming out. But I'll just tell you one other thing about goalies. And I don't share this much, you know, but I mean, this, this, this podcast goes worldwide, right? So. Absolutely. Okay. So you talk about goalies. When I was coming up, before I made it to the Islanders organization, <clears throat> I played in Montreal's organization at the lowest level, Muskegon. So I go to training camp there, and I know enough <clears throat> initiations. <clears throat> Fortunately, they've cut them out. But team initiations when you were a rookie were brutal. I, I can't give you all the details because we don't want to lose listeners and viewers. But we're in Muskegon, and uh, again, a veteran team, a good team, even though it was the low levels. And I'm again, I'm, I'm shy at that time and I'm keeping my mouth shut. Like they said, hey, rookie, you be seen, but not heard. That was kind of OK. So I'm going to do that. But we had this the other guy who looked like he was going to be my partner. But his last name was Anderson from Minnesota. And he was a motor mouse. Right. And he's in that room and he's trying to get in with the veterans. And he's he's trying to already be like one of the focal points of the dressing room. And I said, Andy. I, I think we're, we, you better just tone it down because I just telling you, like he, he was a Minnesota guy, but in junior hockey, oh, the initiations were awful. I said, you know, they're going to try and get us anyway, because that's standard. But if you really, you know, kind of tick them off by breaking these unwritten rules, they're going to come after you sooner. So 
I'm practicing in Muskegon. I'd always stay out and take extra shots. And a few guys would stay out with me. And, you know, because I, I had a lot of work to do. I was a very average goalie. But I come in the dressing room. And I see Andy. They're initiating him. Guys, I can't tell you. I can tell you privately sometimes. I can't tell you what they were doing to him. But I sat down and my eyes, I, I just couldn't believe it. I thought, aren't we teammates here? Why are they doing that to poor Andy? Anyway, to make a long story short, you know, Andy lived. It wasn't, you know, but it was frightening at the time. And I vowed that day. I said, you know what? I'm going to stay on the ice every day that first year until all the players leave. And so after practice, I'd say, hey, can you, would you take some shots and we do some drills? But, you know, those guys had family. Some of them were married. They wanted to go off and go have a beer and sandwich or something. So they'd stay for 15 or 20. But I could see the dressing room door. And I said, well, you're out here. So I would do like uh, shadow drills, you know, two pad slides, butterflies, you know, skating, whatever. And I just, okay, there goes, there goes Danny. There goes Lynn. There goes uh, uh, Steve. You know, I would just watch. And when they were all gone, I said, okay, now I'm going to go. And I'd go in and there'd be nobody else. But you know what? This is no word lie. I did that all year in Muskegon. And the blessing was I made my biggest jump in goaltending because I'm out there. You may as well get something out of it. But it was a frightening uh, initiation site I saw that really, if someone said, how come you're such a hard worker? Again, because I'm a coward and I don't want to get initiated. And so, you know, it, it all worked out. But poor Andy. And then the sad thing for Andy, they, they, they cut him about three weeks into the season anyway. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So uh, you were able to improve your game and, and avoid, did you, were you able to avoid the initiation the whole season? I did. I did, Manny. It was miraculous. Some divine intervention at times, how they, <clears throat> they got somebody else, but they didn't get me. And, you know, I, I would get in my room and close the door and of course, never answer the phone, never answer a knock on the door. Um, I don't know why it was <clears throat> like I say, those initiations, you guys were really rough and they were nice guys, but I'll tell you in new Haven, the one year, um, they were initiating, uh, rookies again with the Nighthawks. That was the Islanders first farm team. And, uh, they said, Chico, you're a rookie. And I lied. I said, no, no, I got it last year in Muskegon. <laughs> and they said, Oh, okay. They didn't have cancer research, but I remember Bobby Nystrom. Big, tough guy. He was tough. But it didn't matter. They were going to get you. They yeah. tried to get him one time after practice. He jumped up on the bench and got in a corner. He grabbed both his skates. Honestly, this is what's crazy. We, you know, we had good morale. Willie O'Ree uh, was on that team too, uh, Maddie and Sam. But Nye stood there with his blades. Said, all right, boys, <clears throat> I know you're going to get. But when are you going to get cut uh, in the process? Okay, well, we'll leave you alone. But then one night we went to Halifax, and they were out having a few. About six or eight of them came back. They grabbed Bobby Nye. He got initiated. It didn't matter. They, they just – and they were the good guys. I don't know why it was so important to initiate. Well, for the fans listening, they stopped initiating. Kelly Lindbergh had had a great year. 
and you might know the story. He was having a great year in Philly, but he he had been come up as a rookie the year before. So that year was really his rookie year, and they they initiated him. They shaved his head, and um, at least according to Bobby Clark, who was a GM, said it really affected him. His play dipped, and uh, he cut out uh, initiations in Philly, which was too late. It should have happened years before, but. You know, it was a different culture. That's why you can't go back and criticize. I don't criticize guys with stuff they were doing in the 70s or 80s. Was it proper and the thing to do? No, but that was the culture. So let's not let's not throw too many stones when you you didn't live it. You, you know what I mean? So yeah. uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of goalie stories. Go, goalies have been changing. Maddie, goalies have been changing the world since they first put pads on. That's right. That that cerebral, athletic, courageous group of hockey players. Hey, who ran the room in the early days for the Devils? Donnie Lever was a captain. He was funny. Phil Russell, because Phil, they were very confident, outgoing. I and then Peter McNabb was a guy that did it. Richie Preston, you know them all. They're all outgoing guys. You know, um, uh, and. They would just just run the room. And um, what happened in those days, it could be the same, but when you went into a new NHL room, there were like three groups of people, just kind of like you go to high school or school, you know, there's groups. There was the one group who was this outgoing group, like Phil and Donnie Lever, and they they weren't naturally recruiting, but People who were like-minded, they like to go out and have a few after every practice, and they go and Totawa there, and they'd go over. And Maddie and I, if you want to tell the story about the the, the truck, you can. But I, but anyway, and so Dan <laughs> I won't name a name, but I'll tell the story after you're done. Okay, so Dana went with that group, and that was fine. Then you had the group that were sort of outgoing, but you know they were more reserved, and they had families, and they didn't always go out. They go sometime, but. And then you had the other group who were quieter and more like, like Mike Bossy, Brian Trache. I'm trying to think of who we had, like Rocky Trache. And oh, I got to tell you another story about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, then you had some quieter guys, reserve guys, Bobby Lorimer, he was there. And then, then we would hang together. It wasn't right or wrong. It was just like three groups. Um, so you, so that was, that's how you kind of, you, you would say, okay, which group do I want to be a part of? And it was fine. Every team had it. Um, but I got to tell you, so that second year, we were laughing, Aaron Broughton and I. Well, no, it wasn't Aaron Broughton because he was part of the joke. We said, you know, we're losing, right? And you're feeling sorry for yourself. And you're saying, oh, nothing's going right with us. Nothing. He said, we got all the wrong family members on our team. Like there, um, Steve Larmer an incredible score with Chicago. We got Jeff Lorm. Uh, you got Brian Trache, a hall of future, hall of famer, incredible player. We got Rocky Trache. He got Brian. And then, and even with the Broughtons, we said, you know, the North stars, they got Neil Broughton and he was on that Olympic great player. And we got Aaron. I mean, when I think about it, uh, it was kind of like a bit of a dig, but it was true and it was kind of funny. But we, we, I don't know who I was laughing with, but I said, yeah, just our luck. We got, but and those guys were all good, <laughs> good players, but you know, they weren't what their brothers were. 
Yeah. Eventually the devils of course got Neil Broughton and helped them to a championship, but yeah, they, they, they got to the, they got to the star late, uh, literally the star, the North star, uh, <laughs> Dallas star player late, but uh, helped him with a championship. I, like I missed out on this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, and guys who would smoke, I mean, right. Chief? I mean, now you never smoked, did you? Uh, no, no, I, I did not. But in, in, in college, I would think there were a lot of guys, right? But when you got to the pro level, I mean, there were guys who would fire up a, a stinger like there's no tomorrow. Okay, how about Bossy, Pot fan, Denny Savard, three Hall of Famers, all smokestacks. And I remember, so again, I'm giving you some history of the, the dressing room. So there was a time where the guys are just smoking at their stall. <sighs> blowing it everywhere and, and you know you didn't think about it so then the non-smoker said hey could you guys at least go in the bathroom so they would they'd be like three four of them in there and then you'd have to go to the bathroom you go can't hardly see the the stalls um and and that was fine but nobody was really like on it and then and then they said mm, could you sit outside could you just go out in the hallway and my wife diane who obviously um, was with me in New Jersey, she still remembers you guys walking down the hall by the visitor's dressing room and Denny Savard, a great before the game or after a uh, warm-up, smoking a cigarette in his chair. And, <laughs> you know, I don't know why. Like, bossy, I, I used to say, I'd say, boss, I really like, when I see you sitting over there because he sat across from me and we're losing or you're not scoring, you're not having a good game. He'd light up a dart. They used to call them darts. And I'd see him smoking, <laughs> thinking and concentrating. I said, all right, boss is going. He's going to get out there. He's going to be flying. And, you know, again, it's uh, it's a culture that you can't look back and criticize because you didn't live it. And, <clears throat> you know, in some ways, I think guys were less critical. Uh, it was, it was a two-edged sword. They, they were more forgiving in some ways, but in other ways, they were they were more critical. Probably the same today. But um, smoking was it just I, Maddie. Just I just want to finish because I can still remember walking in. Now you imagine this: you're walking into the dressing room, and you look and say, "Clark Gilly smoked a lot," and I'd see Clarky's pack of cigarettes sitting <laughs> right there on his stall by his gloves. I mean, you would never see that. No, no. Play, players don't want to put a, a hamburger with cheese on it in their system if they can help it. Forget about it, right? They're so concerned about what they consume in their lifestyle and being at peak performance and forget about cigarette drinking. It's just, it's not done the way it once was, that's for sure. Well, I'll tell you a, a cigarette smoking story that involves a goalie and we'll tie in Pittsburgh, the Devils, cigarette smoking and the media world. So 1995, the Devils beat Pittsburgh in the playoffs, four games to one. Stan Fischler is covering the Devils dressing room. I had not begun full-time work with the Devils. I was doing a lot of basketball at the time, but I was pulled from the Sports Channel uh, talent pool. And I always say everyone in this business is talented, directors, camera operators, et cetera, but they call people in front of the camera talent. So they said, listen, you're going to cover the Devils in this playoff run. So I was assigned to the visiting dressing room. This is in the old igloo. So you know where the Penguins skated off to get into the dressing room? Well, I was told that's where you would set up to be able to get a post-game interview. Well, 
we were told incorrectly, all our equipment set up there, but you had to go around into the main entrance to get in. Well, at that point, wireless was really just coming into existence. We didn't have it. So I'm in trouble. Devils are celebrating, but I need to get something from Pittsburgh. So I don't know what to do. I can't get in with the equipment. We can't get around. We're kind of screwed. And I'm panicked because I'm thinking, here's a career opportunity that is rapidly fading away. Well, underneath the stands, at the igloo, worrying, hearing from our producer, what do you got? What do you got? I got bupkis. And I look and I see the red orange glow of a cigarette in the darkness underneath the stands. It's Kenny Reggett. No. Smoking a cigarette. So <laughs> I put down the gear and I walk over and excuse me. Hi, Kenny. You know, sorry, you know how it worked out, but I'm covering things for the, for the devils. Is there any way I can get a few minutes with you for our post game show? <sighs> yeah. Let me finish this one and I'll come over. He finishes his dart as you called it Chico and sure as can be, he walks over. That's a hockey player. That's a guy who gets it in a terrible time in his athletic career. His team has just been eliminated in the semifinals. He gave me three minutes. He'll always be one of my heroes, but a cigarette glow is what attracted me to Kenny Reggett sitting underneath the stands. Like the morning star. Yeah, yeah. What's that? It was like the Lodestar, saw the North Star in the distance. and uh, It was shit. unbelievable. Yeah, that's right. So, Maddie, instead of your young career going up in smoke, <laughs> it was a smoke that catapulted you into a career. So, uh, I don't know what impact it had. I'm sure I'm exaggerating the chances evaporating, but I was concerned, to say the least. But I came through, and Kenny Rakett, Thankfully, you were smoking a Marlboro light or whatever it was. Because <laughs> I was able to find yeah, the penguin on top. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it kind of tied everything into what we were discussing today. We ended on a note that. Did you that ever meet Kenny? Um, Sam, did you ever meet Kenny? He was a terrific guy, as you know, Matt. He's kind of shy, but a really good guy. Did you ever meet him? Uh, just once briefly, I interviewed him with a, it was an alumni golf tournament. So got to chat with him a little bit then. It was, it was like I said, it was real brief. It was just kind of a quick interview and talking about some of the history and stuff. But I would love to, nice. to have a beer with him, maybe smoke a dart. It's not my thing, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever loosens him up. Whatever breaks the ice for yeah. sure. Well, we've gone almost an hour and we've only scratched the surface of stories and conversations, but uh, we'll save those for another time. We can talk more devil stories. Not only uh, more details about those early years, Chico, but your transition to broadcasting and how those early years went. But it's been a pleasure to spend so much time with you. And uh, you left us with a smile on our faces. And that's what you've done throughout your career as a player, a broadcaster, a friend. So thanks very much. Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you, Maddie. And I'm glad we're done because I got to go have a dart. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats on the new house, honey. What's this? Carbon monoxide detectors? Yeah, but one on every level. Because you can't see or smell carbon monoxide. And when fuel-burning appliances aren't working right, CO can build up and be deadly. Guys, I'm on it. We just want to know you're safe. At PSENG, we're committed to your family's safety. Know how to prevent carbon monoxide poisoning. If your CO detector goes off, leave immediately. Then call 911. Protect the ones you love. Learn more at pseg.com slash gas safety. When you're with Chico... Sam, 
time just flies because he loves to talk. He loves the details. He's such an interesting character. My goodness, that hour flew and we left about 4,000 hours of stories still to be told. It just means we're going to have to do a part two, part three, part four. <laughs> yeah, incredible. I can see why he's so beloved around the entire National Hockey League. Um, you're right. The hour just absolutely flew. It was so enjoyable. I, I could sit here all day, honestly. I feel like I can talk with uh, Chico about whether it's the past experiences he's had, just sharing stories, things of that nature. I mean, what a true gem. Oh, and we're glad that he's part of our Devils family. And you think about it, we know that hockey, the waters are not very wide, but they're awfully deep in the connections of players and coaches present and past uh, is intricate. But when he started out talking about you know, Glenn Hall being his coach and you think who Glenn Hall was as a player and who he played against and and the connection to hockey's past before Chico took to the NHL and now his name's etched on a Stanley Cup and Chico is witnessing the revival of this franchise and who knows what the young players will do ultimately down the line. Oh, just an incredible journey that Chico is on. And again, we you know, we could parse his story in decades. Just tell us more about the 60s. Tell us about the 70s. Tell us about the 80s. Just magnificent. So glad that he spent some time with us. And Sam, welcome aboard uh, to the New Jersey Devils. Uh, we've seen your work in the early going here. I know the fans have appreciated Looking forward to working with you some more and uh, glad to have you with the New Jersey Devils. Glad to be here. Can't wait to work with you and the whole team for the rest of this year and beyond. Sam Kassan joining us as the co-host of this edition of Speak of the Devils, brought to you by RWJ Barnabas Health, the official health care provider of the New Jersey Devils. That'll wrap things up for this edition of the podcast. Thanks, as always, to you, our audience. Without you, we couldn't get it done. There'd be no reason to get it done. We'd be speaking into an empty space. But we know that these programs have resonated with you, and we appreciate your com uh, uh, excuse me, company each and every time out. Until next time, I'm Matt Lachlan. Be well, be safe. So long.